You're listening to Edu Revolution, a podcast that inspires educators to make meaningful change. My name is Michael R. McCormick, and I'm a school district superintendent best known as a technology enthusiast who is dedicated to increasing opportunity and access for each student. I'm sitting down with the movers and shakers who are making waves in the education space through research, practice, and technology integration. Buckle up and be inspired to make changes in your school or district and join the Edu Revolution movement. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Well, hey, everybody, this is Michael McCormick, your host for Edu Revolution Podcast. And uh, I've got an amazing guest on today. He's an educator, author, speaker with an exponential mindset, describes himself as a social ecologist. He's done TEDx. And the last little thing in his Twitter profile is proactively designing the future. Welcome, David Culberhouse. How are you, sir? Oh, it's great to be here, both humbled and happy. Always appreciate talking with you. Yeah, you know, you were one of the guys that uh, back in 2018, we started this edgy revolution Voxer group. And I always thought, you know, when we had been gigging around a little bit and seeing each other at conferences and presentations, but I always felt like you were the real intellect of the group, David. And you may not welcome that title, but um, you're actually a prolific reader and writer. And um, so, you know, kind of this band of guys and gals got together and we started talking about why is it that we're having such a tough time changing our own profession, which is education. And that's, I think, really the concept of how the Edu Revolution movement was born and kind of the inspiration for the podcast. But David, you've been in this space of kind of education, futurist, deep systems thinking work, psychological challenges associated with the work. Let's dive right in. What what was your take on the early stages, the infancy, uh, the infancy of of the Edge Revolution movement, and how did you kind of see yourself fitting into that thing? Yeah, it is, I, I mean, for a long time, going back like into 2016, um, for some reason, and it's interesting too, because you know, as the as an administrator. I often dealt in the um, elementary educational world, but I got deeply interested in the world of work going back 2015, 2016. And, and I really started utilizing some foresight to see what was coming. Uh, I, I think more with automation, but also with AI. And you could see that how the world was shifting and how it was changing and the acceleration of the way it was moving was changing, I think, the the lens and the mindset that we had to have in preparing our kids for the future. Because you were starting to see that the jobs existed previously were moving away. And I know, I know our work is not about just preparing students for work, but it's is preparing them for a global workplace. And and during that time there, I got a lot of pushback of like, what are you talking about? This has nothing to do with us. And what you're seeing now is that we're kind of in the midst of all of that. And um, and I think for me, it was really trying to look at how are we evolving as educators 
to better support our students for a world that I think is becoming very non-obvious and very different. And so maybe that was my place in it. Yeah, I love that. And it it's, uh, takes me to a quote that I teased out of your Twitter feed. The great challenge of education at this very moment is understanding the shift from technical problems to adaptive challenges. What's your take on that? Yeah, I, I've talked about that for probably about the same amount of time, maybe even longer, is that when you look at, you know, what what often was our, our work as educators, whether it was teaching or administrators and leading, was a lot of our problems were more complicated. How do we make sure that we have the best system so that students are getting the best teacher or, um, you know, getting the kids on the bus correctly and making all those systems work? And, and those are all more like complicated problems. And, and now what we've seen is what does it look like for innovation within a district? What does creativity look like in a classroom? These are like adaptive challenges that we're now starting to face. And you're starting to see that we're having less and less of a need to lead around the complicated and more and more understanding of how we deal with the adaptive. The problem is, is when you apply what you would say is maybe the solutions for your complicated problems and you try and overlay those on adaptive challenges, you end up with a lot of frustration and actually dysfunction. And so changing that mindset to understand as, um, as John, uh, is it, is Russ Ackoff would say, is that you now are not actually providing solutions, you're managing messes. And, and it's understanding that in the midst of that, there's tensions and you have to weigh those tensions because you're not necessarily coming up with full solutions. You're trying to look at the best way to move forward and manage these adaptive challenges. And, and I think making that kind of shift takes us over a great umbrella of things that we're facing in education. Yeah. You know, I'm just, I'm pausing in my own mind a little bit because I'm not sure that as people inside education, we do a good enough job of describing the level of complexity that we work with in our systems. And I think maybe people might have a little bit more empathy towards what, you know, it's like I, I, I get emails and social media messages and it's like, well, how come you guys can't open when I can go to all these other things in society right now that are open, but yet you all can't seem to, to figure it out. And some days I literally drive home in the car and think, am I the most incompetent person that there is? You know, why can't we figure some of these some of these problems that we're facing in education, not just with, you know, the pandemic and the reopening of schools and some of the more immediate kinds of problems that lie before us, but man, you know, am I just incompetent or is there another level to this work that it's just like even people in the system may not have a complete understanding? What, what's, your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think as you you explain it, uh, Mike, is that I think there's 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 a well, it, it's very complex. <laughs> um, there's so much um, going on right now in um, in interconnections and and these and, and our systems are really dynamic. And so as you start to look at coming back, 
you also not only want to do it right, and you want to come back in a way that connects students back and educators back, and you want to do it in a compassionate way, and you want to build the capacity to do things different, and all these things are coming together, and you also want to make sure that people are safe. So you have all these complexities kind of hammering in on each other at the same time. And in some ways, when you have that level of complexity, it can feel a bit overwhelming. And it really is a heavy lift because we're not selling a product. We're helping humans prepare for the future. We're trying to make their lives better. We're trying to help our educators have more capacity to support and serve them. And so when you're looking at all these things, it can feel like like you're lifting this incredible weight and and dealing with that really requires us to not simplify but i think we have to take some time to kind of dig into that complexity and let it wash over us and then be open to kind of leaning into it and then i think along with that i think we have to be able to communicate that to our um our stakeholders and bring them into that process and I'll give you a little bit of a, a futurist take on this is that I don't believe we're we're marching towards one future anymore. Before we used to say, okay, here's what we're gonna do, here's what we're gonna aim at. Now we line everyone up and we march towards that. That world really doesn't exist anymore. You have the emergence of a variety of futures happening all around us. The pandemic showed us things can change very quickly and it can become very complex in a matter of days. And so understanding that is how do you then do some scenario planning for your for your educators, for your stakeholders, for all those within your district and your educational ecosystem and community to start to say, okay, look, we're not really marching towards one future anymore. A variety of futures might emerge. And how do we actually start to think about what is it we want? And then how do we prepare as those different futures start to emerge? And I think that helps us deal with the complexity a little more because too often we say, hey, it's one future and then things change and we're like, what do we do now? Instead of saying, look, we have a variety of scenarios. We don't know how this is going to play out. And we don't know if we've even had the foresight to predict it or, or consider it effectively. But we have enough that we can pivot and shift and adapt and be more agile if something comes at us that we weren't expecting. I know that's a little bit of a long answer, but I, I think that's the way you start to, to lean into that complexity because it can be like, it can be overwhelming. Yeah, that, that was really, you know, I, I so appreciate the direction you take on that. And I think it's true. And it's like, you know, just kind of um, responding to, to your comments there, David, it, it makes me think that, in some ways, we have to insulate ourselves so that we're not reacting to every small change. But at the same time, we have to be agile and open to saying, okay, how as an organization can we respond to unexpected circumstances? And what are going to be those kind of like, what's the North Star that's going to guide us in this work, um, irrespective of what's coming at us? And I think that that helps kind of ground the organization. Yet I'm looking at a quote that was uh, another quote that spoke to me. It says, this is deep work. It forces individuals and organizations to move past a veneer way of working. 
It requires depth of trust, depth of relationships, depth of understanding around their values and vision. It takes a willingness to be vulnerable. It takes a willingness to face loss. It takes a willingness to become and stay a learner. And it takes a willingness to want to get better each and every day. And that's adapted from building adaptive capacity. What inspired you to take that quote out of building adaptive capacity and maybe paraphrase? Uh, what, what, what speaks to you there, David? You know, it goes back to that quote, it takes a village, but I think it takes a village that has the supports and capacity to do the work together in a way that uh, facilitates creating those futures that we that we see as more preferable, more possible. And, and I think too often um, we skip by the time and effort and the deep work it takes to build that capacity to try and move to answers or solutions very quickly. We, we have a solutionitis, and, and part of that's time. Uh, we don't always have a lot of time with our people, but we have to create some spaces where we can really dig in and allow ourselves some time to really lie under these big questions in a way that we don't say, we need to solve this now. We have 60 minutes, but to let it wash over us and say, okay, this is this is hard, it's deep work. What do we need to learn? What do we need to build capacity on across the organization so that people understand not only how to help do the work, but what they need to understand in being part of that conversation and, and bringing all those stakeholders to get together in a way, I think that, that builds that together. And, and I don't think that was necessarily maybe um, the case like 10 years ago. You know, it was kind of like stakeholders said, hey, we come in, are you doing things right? Hey, we'll give you a thumbs up, move forward. Now it's like the capacity has to be built to have the understanding of, you know, what are we not only doing now, but where is this taking us? And what do we have to do and learn to actually create that future that we're looking to move us towards? Yeah. I mean, I just, I, that makes sense. no, it does. I mean, I'm feeling like there's a lot of dramatic pauses in the conversation because this is heavy stuff, right? And time is a commodity. Anybody that's run a school or a district, you know, time is commodity. We're looking for fast answers and we're looking for things that we can implement to have an immediate impact on the system. Some people call this silver bullet, you know, and some people take the shotgun approach and they'll start 10 initiatives all at the same time and see which, you know, which spaghetti actually sticks to the wall. And if you've ever worked in an organization like that, it can be pretty chaotic. The pace is brisk, and you feel like you're bouncing from one thing to the next. Um, all the while, you know, you're trying to in increase uh, student achievement. And a lot of times, things don't turn out so well, because it's, it's not necessarily a coordinated effort. And, um, People don't have, they don't feel a sense of responsibility to it. I mean, one of the things that we talked about earlier is, you know, sometimes you 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 walk into a room or a, a physical space or, or even a virtual space like on Zoom or something like that, and you feel like the life just got sucked right out of you. You know, we've all had that experience where you walk in the room and it's just like a big downer or 
you know, on the other side of the coin, sometimes you walk into spaces and you interact with people and they've got bright eyes and smiles and they're happy and the room is full of positive energy. Is the organizational impact of, you know, positive culture versus kind of, you know, bad morale? And how do you think all that kind of works in an, in the benefit of an organization and leadership or against the benefit of the organization and leadership when you're trying to find solutions to some of these adaptive challenges? And, and the thing I really appreciate is you're asking me super easy questions. <laughs> so, uh, no, I'm just, I'm just joking with right. you. Right. These are really difficult questions, and um, and 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 the, it goes back to the, a lot of the questions you're asking are are really that moving us from the complicated answers to how do we look at the adaptive challenges? Um, because you know one of the things that you and I were talking about earlier is that I, I'm playing with this idea of we have this tendency to look at organizational coherence is just really about aligning people around clarity of understanding and communicating it well so everyone understands so they can line up and it goes back to marching towards that one future again and now we have coherence but but the thing that we were talking about and the idea that i've been playing with is that you know in many ways organizational coherence is a physiological thing we we understand when our leaders are not often uh, there's no authenticity with our leaders. We understand when the climate is not positive and it's negative or it's overwhelming or or you're not even being understood or listened to. And so those physiological components that, um, and, and I think you mentioned as the heartbeat of the organization, we understand that the heart and the brain work together. And so if we're going to create that level of coherence moving forward, it's not only for our educators, our students are authenticity meters too. They understand when the culture isn't the way it should be or it's not in it's not serving their best interest. And so how do you create that that level of organizational coherence that has that physiological heartbeat where you say, I want to be part of this. I understand where we're heading and I and and I feel positive about committing to our direction and and how we're we're supporting our educational community and and i think that goes back to that quote you talked about before that's deep work uh, and you know it not only requires trust it requires creating psychological safety and transparent communication and transparent conversations there, there's there's a myriad of things that go into that and when one of those breaks down it's um in many ways, the system can can be a struggle. But just like systems thinker, you can't just fix one part and believe that the system's going to get better. They're all interconnected and they're dynamic. And, and it's understanding and having that 360 kind of point of view to understand how all those interconnect, which make leaders um, support that kind of uh, organizational coherence we're talking about. And so let's talk. Uh, some action orientation here. What is it that we can do or suggest to people that might be listening? Help them think about ways that they can create a culture in their organization where they can do this work together. You mentioned 
psychological safety. I think that's a huge one. You mentioned clear communication and spaces for communication to take place to kind of, you know, air out maybe some resentments. I mean, I've found in my organization, there's like an institutional memory. And I'm guessing that this has to happen in a lot of places where, you know, something may have happened back in 1997. And there's still an institutional memory and resentment for what took place. And so how do you, you know, how do you walk your way through things as a leader that you may not even have a complete awareness because you're just coming into the conversation, you know, when you joined the organization like five years ago, but this stuff happened like, you know, 20 years ago. And um, that authenticity, I think, is another piece is, you know, can like, it makes me think more than I'm getting older now that a part of this work is also being vulnerable, leaders displaying vulnerability. Because uh, I heard it said like this, uh, and if you're going to lead people, you have to be able to care and connect with people. Otherwise, it's very difficult to lead people. So I, I threw a lot at you, but I did kind of want to get, you know, get some some recommendations out there to the field of ways that we might be able to create these psychologically safe places, uh, maybe display some vulnerability, uh, maybe tackle and, you know, pick the scab off of some of those 20 year wounds that might be in the system that are hampering trust. Like that's another huge one. So I'll, I'll kick it over to you, David. I think moving forward, I honestly believe that we re we need to kind of reevaluate our language of leadership. I think our language determines our expectations. I still hear words, you know, I, I love the quote from Peter Singane, business, they call it innovation and education, they call it reform. And so um, I, I think we have to be able to start to allow ourselves and, and and we talked about this earlier because it goes along with the way I look at music is that when I was a kid I was always looking for the music that no one was listening to I do the same thing with reading and so in some ways we have to be able to build our own capacity and start to to build new understandings of how we're going to approach uh, I think our educational systems moving forward if we're really going to have change and um, one of the things that I know you and I have talked about, I, I really, when I look at innovation over a long period of time of digging deep into it, I still appreciate Cotter's dual operating system. And that goes along with building, building, because a lot of times people will say, you know what, we're just gonna blow up the system and we're just gonna create new educational system. But that never seems to happen because the hierarchies are often entrenched. But what Cutter talks about is that look at your hierarchies as kind of the efficiency side of the organization. The problem is that we only have those, so we become very static and very, very efficiency-focused instead of effectiveness-focused. And so what he's saying is that you need those dynamic networks where the people who also exist in the hierarchy are also working on the network side where they're looking at things from a more entrepreneurial standpoint, where they're looking things 
you know, networks of learning, and then they're merging that um, network side and the hierarchy side in ways that brings more innovation. And the one thing I also like about Cotter is that he kind of moved us away from that idea of we're going to bring a vision to people to saying, what's our big opportunity? And to me, that's a language shift. Now you're looking at dual operating systems. You're looking at words like networks and how do networks influence our hierarchies. Instead of looking at words like vision, we're looking at what's really our big opportunity. And so as you start to look at those things, I think it allows us then to create space where we can have more exploratory talk. I know um, as you get higher and higher up in education, um, we we can push people into this um space where you have to be the expert instead of the learner. And I think that that um, can very much hamper and diminish the way people are open to explore new ideas. And so how do you create spaces where it's okay to have exploratory talk? Uh, I think as Douglas Barnes talked about exploratory talk, not only for the classroom, but I think you also need to take that up into educators and leadership uh, all the way through the system so that you can really have deeper conversations. And I think one of the things that I brought up recently is that I think a lot of people are walking back into in-person education with a lot of assumptions. And, and our mental models and maps of what we've seen over the last year and a half can be very individualistic. And I think we need to get those out on the table so that we can look at the assumptions that we have, any biases that are coming out, and say, how do we move past these and be really reflective and introspective, and then start to create new mental models and new maps moving forward. And, and the one last thing I think you need to be able to do moving forward, especially in leadership, is that there's been this tendency over years to say, we're a PLC, or we're a design thinking school, or we're this or that. I think today's leaders have to be much more effective at braiding frameworks and bringing the best of those together. Because to me, improvement science is really good, but also parts of design thinking should be braided into that. I also think that understanding complexity and VUCA needs to be braided into that. Um, and, and ideas of sense making and uh, adaptive leadership, all those things need to be braided together so that you're pulling the best of frameworks together to actually build new frameworks moving forward. So those are a couple things. Um, and, and, I, and, and one last thing, I think leaders need to get more comfortable in moving away from not just either or thinking and to and thinking, but understanding that you're in a world now that has a lot of tensions and polarities. How do you then wrestle those in ways that are best for the organization moving forward? Because people will tend to move to one side or the other instead of being able to understand that and has a great, it, it, the idea of and is so, so much more um, better moving forward, I'm, the words aren't coming to me, than just constantly moving to either or thinking. So there's yeah. a few things. Sorry, I'll stop No, there. no, no, no. That was really good. I, I, I appreciate your perspective on this stuff. And I really keyed in to the concept of braiding frameworks. And I think that's that's one of the things that I've been working towards without really thinking about it. Um, and I've been looking for 
visual affirmations or, you know, something visual that people can look at. Because I think the power of illustrations or the power of a visual framework, it helps people make the connections from one framework or idea to another. And it it helps people to understand how these things interplay with one another. Um, And so that's what kind of drew me to things like the portrait of a graduate or, Mm -hmm. you know, the four C's because um, there's a lot of moving parts to this stuff because it is complex and you don't want to break it down to its simplest form because then I think that's not value added. But I think if you can provide some sort of an infograph or a visual theory of action for people, it does help folks connect the dots. And um, so that's something I've been kind of playing around and thinking thinking about for a while. Uh, one of the things and, and, that... And I've seen oh, that. I was just going to say, and I've seen that come out of your district. You know, I, I see how you're, you're trying to bring those moving parts together in ways that... Um, catalyze your your community around not only understandings but uh how to better support um your educational ecosystem and your students for um for preparing them for this non-obvious future i see that coming out of your system well thank you david i appreciate that one of the things i first was introduced to when i met you Uh, was this idea of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, VUCA for short. Let's let's take a stab at VUCA for a little bit. Uh, When the pandemic hit and we were, you know, making shifts very quickly in education, uh, I was thinking, this is a VUCA moment. I just, I remember, I didn't express that out loud to anybody, but at the time I was thinking, man, David Culberhouse is on to something here because we're dealing with volatility, uncertainty, a level of complexity, and kind of ambiguity. And it's like there isn't a clear path forward. And it's it may seem a little unrelated, but one of the fascinating um, opportunities I had during the pandemic is I got connected with some pediatricians. And... Um, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, could kids get COVID-19 or couldn't they and why? And and so I'm connected to some pretty well-known pediatricians. And I said, well, I've been looking at some research out of the University of San Francisco. And they've discovered this thing called the ACE2 receptor. And um, it's kind of underdeveloped in kids. And the ACE2 receptor is located, you know, in the nose somewhere. And um, this is like the doorway where COVID enters the body. And um, the, the, the two pediatricians that I was talking to had not yet heard that. And I thought to myself, this is a moment. This is an interesting moment in history where an educator who has no medical background whatsoever is aware of something that people in the medical field, like it hasn't like scaled out to where it's become a universal knowledge set. And it's interesting now, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you understand anything about the ACE2 receptor or not. The power is that information is all over the place, but it doesn't mean that everybody has yet heard it. And 
And that, I guess, is just a little example that I was thinking about in terms of the uncertainty and the ambiguity and the complexity, even against the communication channels. Uh, because we got a, a window into the medical community and the, and the public health community that we had never seen before. I mean, heck, I couldn't have even told you who our local public health officer was, you know, pre-pandemic. The pandemic hits, and now all of a sudden, you know, this individual's name is widely recognized and how quickly things shifted. And so, you know, I don't know where I was going with all that, David, but I, I guess it was just kind of try to tell a, a story with an example embedded in it that just because something is happening in one system doesn't mean it's happening in another system. And likewise, just because there's a common set of knowledge in one system doesn't mean that common set of knowledge transfers over to another system or even a part of the same system. I mean, I've got 22 different schools in my in my system. And it's how do we keep all of these kind of interdependent parts that should be kind of in some way dealing with the same knowledge set, but keep the whole thing moving forward. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or if I've just went too far down the rabbit hole here. No, I, I like what you're saying, uh, Mike, because I, I think the one thing I started thinking about when you were talking about that, my, my tendency, and you brought this up early on, is that I'll go to books. Oh, you know, you make me think about Ori Brockman's work or you're making me uh, think about Pascal's work, which you really did, you know, and it started those considerations of are we really bringing the unusual suspects to the table? That's what Brackman would call them or, you know, too often um, decisions are made by a small group of people when that group of people might not have a deep understanding of the decision that they're making it around instead of bringing different people to the table to bring in a diversity of thinking and and new ideas to the table that's that's the idea of bringing unusual suspects to the table and then you make me think of pascal's work of how often do we look across our organizations determine who the positive deviants are the ones who are actually who have the same resources the same everything and they're actually making it work in really good ways and then determining what kind of behaviors and, and things that they're doing by really taking that empathetic approach to watching and understanding and then and then bringing that back to the organization in a way that's positive so it supports what the person's doing but doesn't make someone else feel like they're not doing good work, but in a way that you can create new behaviors, new actions, and then better outcomes. That's really what you were making me think about. You know, I appreciate that, David, because I think that's, it's, you know, I, I've often thought about a healthy organization as a listening, learning organization. One that is seeking out, as you describe the positive deviance, or kind of, you know, where where is that incubator work happening within the system? And then how can we scale those best practices that are happening within the system and get those to reach, you know, more educators and more kids and more families that we serve because we have pockets of innovation happening all the time. And then as the leader, I've always felt, again, like it was my responsibility to identify those pockets of innovation, those deviants, 
and, and I'm using that in a very positive way. Yes. And then be able to bring that to the masses. And I, I want to say, I want to go back to, you know, for people that might be um, newer in leadership is think about the structures in your organization that allow you to be a listening, learning organization. How are you reaching out and tapping into the corners of your organization and giving, well, first of all, identifying, um, you know, those, those pockets of innovation and then what kind of systems do you have to be able to then, you know, normalize and scale those pockets of innovation and do you have a culture of psychological safety where people are willing to take a risk, step out and try something different? And heck, you know, if it doesn't work, it's okay. But there's a chance it could work. And so how does the organization recognize and celebrate those pockets of innovation, those incubators that are out there? And encourage others to do the same kinds of things. And I think that takes safety it takes trust it takes the communication channels again to get those kind of diversity of thoughts and ideas where everybody is willing to listen there's a positive energy that comes around that stuff any any thoughts on that before we shift to the next topic david yeah just one last thing um and and i think it's really important because you came at it from a you know from a leadership standpoint is that Often what's happening that's really creative and innovative tends to stay at the fringe of an organization, which I like to call more at the boundaries, because I think every organization has a boundary. And uh, sometimes we have to look at, are we moving past those boundaries or are we just staying insulated in our own pocket? But when, when that innovation's happening at those fringes, it's not usually happening in the core of the organization. And so searching that out, And it's kind of like you have to fold the outside into the inside and see how you allow that to affect the organization. Because, you know, when it's happening at the fringes, you have to make the core open because the core of any organization likes to stay in a sweet spot and keep doing what it is doing. And so whenever you make it change, it pushes back a bit. And so folding that over and then being willing to kind of push through that tension is really important. And, and I like how you brought that across because um, there will be tension and, and there will be pushback. But how a leader can make that into a positive um, process is really important. Uh, and how they react if failure happens also determines how, more, how much people will be open to that kind of innovation and change in the future. Yeah, appreciate those words. Yeah, thank you for that, David. And um, you know, it just it it makes me think that the the system, the core system that you described, is always striving for homeostasis. So you know, it can kind of get if you think of it like you know, sponge or styrofoam, you know, something that's soft and pliable. It may get stretched out for a little bit but it always wants to retract back into that normal, stable state, whatever that was. And so systems change is not easy. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of tension between compliance and innovation or between homeostasis and trying something new and different. 
You know, one of the things I was thinking about as um, we were preparing for today's conversation is we never talk about our failures. And so I want to take just a little bit of time. I don't want you to go, you know, in super detail on this. But one of the things that I see, I'll, I'll go first, is, um, and I did this myself, you know, I was super excited to get my first principalship and couldn't wait. It was going to be my chance to build my dream school. And what I soon realized is that it's not just about me with my ideas. It has to be a shared collective vision of where we're going together. And I've seen a lot of young administrators, new administrators, early career administrators kind of walk down that same path. I almost wonder if it's a natural progression that we have to go through where we wake up one morning and we go, well, I guess my way wasn't the only way to get there and maybe not even necessarily the best way to get there. And um, I know early on I caused a tremendous amount of frustration uh, in some of the places I was leading because I, I, I was holding so tightly onto what I thought was going to be the best way to move forward. And I've learned in my old age that it's actually takes a lot more than that. And so that, that was kind of my being vulnerable, David, what, 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 what's something that comes to mind for you? Oh my gosh, there's so much. Um, <laughs> I think going along with this is that um, I, I think a thing that's because you brought up that, that I read a lot and, and I do. And I think sometimes I read too much and you can get caught up in um, a curse of knowledge or always having the answer. You know, like, oh, I, you know, I know I got something for that and I got something for this. And you can become uh, in a way that you don't want to be. And sometimes you just have to be really introspective and control it. And so I think the thing that I've really tried to. Um, and, and I don't know if it falls under failure or change is just. Coming back towards being a better listener and not a better idea provider or a better answer giver is that, okay, just bring yourself back and just listen and connect with people. And, and when you can support support, but not always try and be the first one to the table with answers. And, um, and there could be a lot of things, you know, from my childhood on that makes me, you know, do that because, you know, I, you know, sometimes you feel like, um, you know, well, it's just, I think, working through that process in a way that um, I think the challenge is how do you not show that you know, but how do you make people better? By, by being a good listener. I mean, Brene Brown talks about this as armoring up. And uh, I think that one of the ways that we can armor up as leaders is by throwing information at people and trying to provide that answer rather than just being a good listener in the moment. It, it almost, it reminds me of, you know, our personal relationships with our loved ones, our spouses. And, you know, many times I think people just want 
somebody to listen to them, not even necessarily solve their problem for them, but to just, and it kind of goes back to that listening, learning organization. And so sorry, sorry to kind of uh, cut you off there, but I, I appreciate your vulnerability because I think, you know, we all have this, uh, we all have a part of this in us, I think, as, as leaders. We want to solve the organizational challenges. We want to solve people's problems. And um, sometimes it's more about being a good listener. What do they say? Um, lead with your ears. God gave you two ears and one mouth. Use them in that ratio, right? <laughs> yeah. But- but going back to that, you know, because I said it's a challenge, but but we fail at it a lot, and and it's I, I think the thing that's important is being reflective and introspective. Um, I think it it becomes bad is when you you lose awareness. I think that emotional intelligence is so important. Of just you know, you're you're gonna fail, you're you're gonna struggle with that, but being aware and saying how do I get better at it, you know, going along with what you were saying is is um is is really difficult but it's really important yeah i love that so kind of uh bringing things to a conclusion here what's on your gratitude list david wow there's there there's yeah i mean i know you've got a son you're incredibly proud of who is just a brilliant young man well two of them two of them okay yeah I not only have just incredible gratitude for the time that I get to spend with them um, and uh, just just having them in my life is uh, has changed me in so many, so many more positive ways. But um, the the gratitude of, um, you know, for me is, you know, I, I feel like and, and you know how I, I kind of work. I feel like God's kind of provided me um, a job where I can work every day and, and provide, you know, as well as I can for my family. And so I know, you know, that a lot of what I do, whether it's keynotes or speaking in districts or anything, I, I consider that I do it for free or I do it for, for non-cost. Cause to me, I just love the idea. I have gratitude for the, the opportunity just to, converse with people and speak with people and learn with people. Um, I, you know, I have gratitude for my family and, and all that they bring to my life. And um, just those opportunities to um, improve our profession. Um, and, and if I can help support that in a way that's positive, um, I have gratitude for that opportunity too, um, because I think it's really important that we think about how we're in, how we're creating more equitable, more inclusive, more preferable futures for our kids. Because I I feel like right now kids are looking at the future and they're not seeing a whole lot. And I think we need to to create a visual, like you mentioned before. We have to make that future visible for them right now. And, and, you know, I have gratitude for the opportunity to try and hopefully be part of that. And so, um, yeah, there's a myriad of things, but, um, you know, family and that opportunity really mean a lot to me. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, th- I think I, I share a similar philosophy in that, um, you know, 
it's the experience that is worth so much. And when you can build out your network and meet new people and know that you might be a small part of creating some spark of change that happens in another district or another location, um, the ultimate gift is that we could be making the adults in the system more capable of creating an environment where our students can be more successful. Yeah. And uh, to me, that's, that's really, you know, the name of the game. I, I, I share on my gratitude list, that same sort of experience, David. So I appreciate that. And uh, I'm going to put in the show notes, the, the place where people can connect with you. I know you've got a, a blog, D Colber house, uh, D Colber, I think it is D Colber H. Yeah. D Colber H. Okay. And then um, certainly on Twitter, uh, people can locate you there. And so I'll link those in the show notes. And I just want to say, Thank you, David. It's been wonderful having you on the show today, and um, I look forward to us continuing uh, to have our paths cross. It, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Uh, well, for me personally, I appreciate all that you do uh, for our profession and raising it up. Um, your your leadership and your district is uh, really a, a bright star. You know, what we talked about, that positive deviance in the system, you bring a lot to um, to providing um, that North Star of, of where people can look and learn from. And you've always been open to sharing that with people. And so I appreciate not only seeing your leadership and your wisdom, I appreciate our opportunities to talk and share because uh, it only makes us better. And um so thank you for all that you do in uh, creating a better profession and supporting our students for a better future. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening today. I hope you feel inspired to be the change our students need. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can connect with me on Twitter at Mike underscore McCormick2 and Instagram at Michael R. McCormick. And hop on over to the edurevolutionpodcast.com website for free resources that support your next change initiative.